Hey there, everyone. This is Pastor Ryan from Mountain View. I just wanted to take a quick second and thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. We we hope that this message just fills your soul. It fills your heart. Uh, we pray that this message impacts your life in some way, shape, or form, and the gospel just changes you. So thank you so much for tuning in for the Mountain View podcast. We hope you enjoy. Well, good morning. How are you? Good, good. I was going to say, you ought to look at your neighbor and say, you look better than I remember. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, how many, how many like school? Yeah, you don't, too many of you raised your hand there. That makes me really nervous here. Okay. <laughs> yeah, you graduated. I'm done learning, right? I'm done learning. Um, first of all, I just want to say thanks for letting me come back. Um, and by the way, you can call me Steve. Dr. Mills is way too official, and that's not necessary. So Steve works for me. Or Pastor Steve or whatever is fine, whatever. So it doesn't really, that kind of stuff doesn't bother me a whole lot. Um, the other day I walked in, uh, I used to work for a period of time, I worked for a while at Home Depot. And I worked in middle management, so I oversee several of the departments in, in Home Depot. And I walked in the store and I met some people that I would had, you know, a few years ago worked with. And it's always interesting to me, and it kind of caught me, you know, again, just kind of intrigued me. I walked in and I, I said, well, how are you doing? And the classic line is, just live in the dream. Just live in the dream. And you know, and I've, I've noticed that several times when I walk into different places and ask people how they're doing, what, what, you know, how their day's going, or what are you doing up to, or how's things going, and well, just live in the dream. Well, I've noticed that it's really, there's a little bit of sarcasm and cynicism when somebody says, just live in the dream. What does it mean to live the dream? Just living the dream. You know, as I was thinking about that, is that when we think about living the dream, I'm going to pull this up here because I see some of you are trying to see me a little bit. This work? Okay. What's it mean to live the dream? You see, deep, I think, inside of every one of us is a dream. Uh, how many remember when you were, some of you are, are there, but how many remember when you were younger, when you were a child, you'd always, somebody would ask you, what do you want to be when you grow up? Well, some of us still haven't grown up. Some of us are working on the growing up. What do you want to be when, you, and, and I don't know about you, but I remember for me, I wanted, to, I wanted to be a professional football player, and it was for the Dallas Cowboys. Now, some of you, I know that's, when I said that, I lost half of my crowd right now. <laughs> but you have to understand, I was, I'm from Wyoming. I grew up in Wyoming. I didn't, it was before Seahawks. 
and Roger Staubach, and who was, who was the best coach ever? There you go. See, I'm not the only one. But I remember thinking, and I re- you know, my mom and dad would, what I want for my birthday, I remember one year I got, I think it was probably fourth or fifth grade, I got Dallas Cowboys helmet and s- shoulder pads. And, and I remember, man, I had a, a little birthday party with some of my friends from school and, you know, somebody kicked the ball way up in the air and I was, had my helmet on for the first time and my shoulder pads and man, I was going to make the big catch and run for the, you know, the touchdown and the ball and I can't see through my helmet and that ball hits me right there in the, you see, dreams, (laughs) dreams. As children, we've all, I think, had dreams. And if we had time here today, we could probably go around the room and ask you, what did you dream of when you were a child? What's the dream that you have even in your life right now? Maybe it's a dream that you've had. Maybe it's a dream that you still possess, still hold on to. I think uh, some of you will remember Art Linklater in his show, Kids Say the Darndest Things his book. By the way, they brought that show back, but it's more about the person doing the show than it is about the kids, I think. So anyway, but in his book, he writes and he tells some of the stories of some of the little interviews that he does with the the children. And I think it's kind of funny because he, he asked one little boy, he says, so what do you want to be when you grow up? And the little boy says, I want to be a, uh, I want to be a baseball player. Well, what position do you want to play? He said, I want to be a pitcher. He says, well, what's the most important thing about being a pitcher? He said, being friends with the umpire. (laughs) Pretty smart wisdom there, yeah. He asked a little girl, he says, what do you want to be when when you grow up? And she says, well, I want to be a nurse. He says, well, um... What's, what's, the, not, uh, what's the hardest part of being a nurse? And she said, be nice to all those cranky patients. Well, what's the most fun thing? And she said, giving them shots. <laughs> <laughs> Asked another little girl, she says, so what do you want to be when you grow up? And she says, I want to be Miss Universe, Miss, Miss Universe. And he says, well, what's it take to be Miss Universe? And she said, you just got to have everything in the right places. (laughs) You see, it's interesting that even children in their innocence have this desire for dreams, for a dream. In their innocence, we, I think, you know, in in our own lives, we've grown up with this idea, what do you want to be? And somewhere inside of us, there's this, I think, kind of a God-given kind of a desire for dreaming. And we all tend to have a desire, I think, for our lives to make a difference. To live a dream, to make our lives significant, to make our lives count. This, I think, is a God-given desire. God puts something in every one of our hearts that basically draws us from where we are to something that we can envision that we can become that's more than what we are and better than what it is now. 
You see, Jesus was speaking, and if you have your Bibles, I'm going to be talking in, in John chapter 10. John chapter 10. And in this passage, let me set the scene for a second. Jesus is talking to his disciples, a little band of dreamers. If you, if you understand and get where the, what the perspective was here is that Jesus had, had been doing his ministry going throughout Israel, Judea. People were being healed. In fact, actually just before this, he had healed a blind man. But these men that were following Jesus, his disciples, they had, if you will, grown up in the church. Now, it wasn't called church then. It was a synagogue. It was, uh, it was Judaism. They'd grown up in the church. And all of their lives they'd gone through the classes, the Sunday school classes, the teaching. The... And as they were getting a little older, and many of these ones that began to follow Jesus as his disciples were actually younger, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20. They were younger. But they had grown up in the church and, and they were dreamers. They were dreaming of something that was going to be greater. They had continued to hear from their teachers, from the, the priests and the, and the, the scribes and, and, and the Pharisees and the different teachers that there was a Messiah that was coming and they were anticipating that this dream would be fulfilled. They were not too much probably unlike us. They were setting, if you will, in their churches and their, their synagogue. And as little dreamers, they, were, they, I think, often would say to themselves, there's got to be more to church than this. There's got to be more to life than this. Have you ever asked yourself that question? A few years ago, in fact, actually it's been several years ago, as I was traveling and teaching all across the United States. I, I remember one uh, conference I was speaking at, I asked a question, I said to the, 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 the audience, I said, how many of you have sat in your church and thought to yourself, there's got to be more to church than this? And the hands went up really literally all over. And I realized that at that moment that maybe this is a feeling that lots of people have. And so I would go around different places and as I was speaking or teaching, I would ask the question. And almost always there would be nodding of heads or raising of hands, yes, I, I, that's me, that's where I, I have, I've had that question. And then I got to the point where I would ask the question and I say, oh, now I'm gonna ask you a serious question, but I don't want you to respond. I don't want you to respond, raise your hand or anything like that. And I would again ask the question, how many of you sat in your church or looked at your own life and said to yourself, there's got to be way more to it than this. And it's like they couldn't help themselves. It would be the nodding of the heads or the raising of the hands. And I realized that maybe this question is a bigger question. Maybe it's a question that many or maybe all of us ask at times. You see, it was this kind of a situation that Jesus was coming into, that it was this kind of people, this little band of dreamers, his disciples, the Jewish leaders, 
It was this kind of a setting that Jesus came into. And he was speaking to people who were literally thinking to themselves, there's got to be more to spirituality. There's got to be more to life. There's got to be more to religion. There's got to be more than my, to my life than what I see and what I'm experiencing. And it was in that moment, and now let me set the scene. In John chapter 9, if you have your Bible, I'm not going to read, I'm going to talk the story and then I'm going to read a passage here in just a moment. But setting the scene in John chapter 9, Jesus had just came out of a walking by, passing by one day of a normal path that he would take. And it says he came to a man that was blind. We don't know his name, but it says that he healed the man. The man came up to him and asked, and, and as Jesus was looking at him and talking to him, it says that he took, he knelt down, he spit, he put mud on his eyes. And he says, I want you now to go wash in the pool of Siloam. And the man who had been, and we don't know his age, but it's likely that he was probably 25 to 30 years of age, maybe even older. He had been blind all of his life. He had never seen the light of day. He had never seen the trees. He had never seen anything. He had never seen it. And now, as Jesus put that mud over his eyes, he obeyed, he walked, and he went to the pool. He washed his eyes, and he came back, and he said, I can see it was a miracle. But the minute that that miracle happened, something else took place. The people said, who is this, who is this guy? Is that not the guy that was blind? And said, some, yeah, it was, it's him. And so then the Pharisees, the religious leaders came and they said, so who is this? And they again explained. It's the guy that was blind, sitting right here every day. And the religious leader said, who did this to you? And he says, Jesus. And they're like, they were angry. They were angry. And they said, well, how can Jesus, he's a sinner. How can Jesus do this kind of stuff? Because they, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, weren't willing to accept the fact that Jesus was in fact the Messiah. It's very difficult to accept a dream if you're unwilling to accept the person who gives the dream. Well, moving the story on further, quickly. It was in this context that Jesus then pulled basically aside and he comes to his disciples. And it's in this setting that he comes to his disciples and he begins to say to them, and actually it's the Pharisees and the religious leaders who are standing there as well, and he begins to tell the story that most of us know as the Good Shepherd story in John chapter 10. I am the Good Shepherd, I know my sheep. 
And without reading the whole passage, I want to focus on one verse, John chapter 10, verse 10. And he's telling his disciples, he's saying, I want you to understand everything that you've seen, all the religious leaders, all the experiences, all the problems. He says, all these other things that you're listening to are trying to rob you of the dream. That everything is trying to take away what I intend and plan for your life. The purpose that I've created you for. The dream that I have in your life, for your life. And Jesus says to them, you need to be careful of the voices. Be careful of the things that are going to rob you from the very most important thing that I have for your life. The dream that I put in your heart. The dream that I've created you for. The dream that I come to make your life count. To make it a difference. And it's in that context, he says... The thief comes to steal and to kill. And he's basically saying there's lots of things that are going to try to rob you of the dream. There's lots of things that are going to try to take away from your life making a difference or being fulfilled. And he says, but I want you to know something. I have come that you might have life. And what does it say? How, what kind of life? Abundant. And what he is basically saying is he said, he's he basically saying, if you look back to the guy that was blind, who was just going through life, mere existing in life, he says, I healed him. I made his dream reality. And he's not blind, now he sees. In other words, think about that for a second. Would your life have more meaning if you were that young man who could not see and then the next minute could see everything? Would your life be different? Would you feel like it was better? And what Jesus was saying, that's what I want to do. He had just healed this blind man. He was warning them of this. He was warning them that you need to be careful that you're not listening to the wrong voices. Think about this for a moment. The people around Jesus, they had heard him say, I'm the Messiah. I will give you life. They had actually been there when he turned the water into wine. They'd been there in many of cases when he had performed other miracles and they had literally observed just moments before this blind man getting his sight. And he was saying, you're not listening to me. You're not listening to the facts. You're not listening to the miracles. You're not listening to the testimony. The young man that was healed said, I don't know anything. All I know is I was blind and now I can see. He was convinced. He, there was nothing to argue with. But he was saying, you know, sometimes if a person does not want to believe not even, the, not even the facts can change our perspective. And they rob us of our dream. Jesus was warning his disciples to be careful to listen to the right voices. Have you ever listened to voices that rob you of a dream? Have you ever listened to voices? Let's, sometimes the voices that we listen to are the voices that come from wrong choices that we've made. Anybody here want to, you know, I can raise my hand or two, wrong choices you've made? 
And you know what? Wrong choices can rob us of dream. They can rob us. You know, we make choices, we've blown it. Sometimes that voice that we hear in our head is the kind of thing that says, you'll never ever be anything again. You failed so bad that it'll never be okay. You'll never succeed, you'll never be okay. A voice that sometimes comes from when we've made choices that we know have left us with consequences that are difficult to manage. Jesus was saying, don't listen to that voice. We make wrong choices. But he says, the voice that says you've made a wrong choice and you'll never succeed is not a true voice. I have come, even when you make bad choices, to give you life and life abundantly. Another voice sometimes is just simple bad judgment. Not with an intentional trying to make a wrong choice, but just simply bad judgment. We do or make a choice that simply costs us something or causes problems or creates confusion or frustration in our lives. Sometimes relationships that are broken and strained in our lives causes us to question. We hear voices that cause us to feel anger, causes us to feel bitterness. And those voices bombard our lives and they drown out the voice of reason and the voice of promise and the voice of the dream that says, you don't have to live in this bitterness and this brokenness. Sometimes it's our desires that send us in the wrong direction, lack of discipline, that we just simply don't take ourselves, if you will, and grab ourselves and say, hey, I need to get some discipline in my life, and we live in kind of a passive, lethargic, kind of undisciplined manner. Sometimes we live in past memories rather than the future vision. Sometimes it's fear, fear of failure that robs us of the dream. Fear of what others are going to think. Fear of how it's going to work out. Sometimes it's guilt or shame. Sometimes it's our success and our self-confidence that robs us of our dream. Sometimes, it, in fact, actually, this is what was causing this, this religious leaders the trouble. They thought they had it all together. Did you know that thinking you've got it all together can rob you of God's dream? Because it makes us unwilling and unable to hear. We got enough money, we got enough education, we got enough success, we've got it all together and by all standards we're okay. And Jesus says, don't let success and don't let self-confidence rob you because there's still more. You see, Jesus is the builder of dreams. And just like you and I have dreams, churches have dreams. And this is where the teaching using the whiteboard comes in. Um, I hope you can see this. I can draw it in the air if you want, but I thought I asked Pastor Ryan if this would help. Can you kind of see that? If I can, out of the way. What I'm going to show you is something that typically happens in a, in a, in a church. It's called an organizational life cycle, but what I'm going to show you here as application not only to a church, but also to our lives, has an application to marriage, has an application to the relationships that we have, has an application to the programs that we have in our church, because we all tend to go through cycles. And I'm going to take it initially and talk about it as a church. I'm going to think about it as a church. When a church starts, it starts with a dream. 
Your church here started with a dream. Some of you probably remember different things that have happened, different times, dreams this church has had, things that have happened, God's move, etc., etc. It starts with a dream. And while there's a few other stages and different things in here, let me just kind of cut some of that out. I mean, it starts with a dream, then you'll start seeing, you know, we need to have some, you know, somebody envisions that there's going to be a church and God's going to do some phenomenal things and structure and programs and ministry. And then we get up here to the point when it's like everything is really working well. The church is growing, people are coming to know Christ, they're growing in their faith, they're coming to, you know, things are just happening in a good way. You feel and sense and know God's at work. And that ministry phase goes on. And by the way, as you're moving from the dream up, it's, there's an increasing amount of excitement. There's often a lot of work. People are willing to get involved and committed. Their volunteers are easy to find, but people are working because they want it to happen. And it's just like, it's fun being a part of something that's moving somewhere, going forward. And then you get to this ministry, and like I said, it's kind of like driving a, a, on a great automobile when everything is just working right. I mean, you're just going down the freeway at 110 miles an hour. You ever like to do that? Don't tell me if you did. But you're just going down the freeway, just, and it's just smooth. It's, it's great. And then as you head down for ministry, what often happens is that you find yourself at this next stage. Now, you know you're in this stage. It's called, whoa, can you see that? That is not good. Nostalgia. By the way, spelling is not something that's important to me, okay? Nostalgia. Do you know how you know when you're in nostalgia? The way you know you're in nostalgia is when you start hearing things like this. I remember when. I remember pastor so-and-so. I remember those glory days. If we could only get back to that. Or you'll hear somebody say, well, you know, we, we tried that and that's not gonna work here. Or we can't do that. And nostalgia kind of begins to, if you will, kind of rob us of the dream because we're living in the past. And nostalgia sets in and, and it's kind of like, you know, we're still doing okay. People are still enjoying each other and the relationships are good and all that. And, but nostalgia, if a church and the church and leadership and the, as a whole doesn't begin to say, man, we need to redream. We need to get back to not this dream, but the next dream God wants because it's not yesterday's dream. It's the new dream from glory to glory. It's not we're looking for yesterday's dream. We're looking for the dream he has for us now. And so if we don't do something with it, we don't redream, we don't get God's spirit in his mind, we find ourselves often sliding into this next stage, which is called questioning. We start to question. We start questioning what's going on around here. We start asking questions, and usually there's kind of two phases to the questioning phase. The first time is that we'll set in our, we come to church, we're going through the motions, we're teaching, we're preaching, we're serving, we're doing whatever we do. 
But we find ourselves losing energy and we find ourselves just kind of internally contemplating and saying the question that I asked you before. There's got to be more to church than this. I'm still teaching, still preaching. I'm still working, I'm still doing. But there's got to be more. And that internal questioning is just a question that I'm not really talking to anybody about, but I just feel the energies draining out of my spirit. I just feel kind of weak and I don't feel energized and I'm not excited anymore. And that internal question, if, if we don't as a congregation arrest it, we then sit down and we'll go to coffee and we'll sit down and we'll have a cup of coffee. And I may just simply say, how do you think things are going in our church? And if, I forgot your name, help me. David. And if David comes back and says, you know, I just don't feel like I'm getting anything out of it. You know what's happened? The questioning has gone from internal to interpersonal. Now that question becomes a congregational question. Not only is David and I questioning that, but David and his wife and his family and et cetera. And all of a sudden, pretty soon, we're all beginning to question. And that question permeates, and there's, in some cases, nobody says anything, but you know it. You feel it. There's an undercurrent of question. And that questioning thing oftentimes requires that we have to identify what the problem is. And often what we identify as the problem is not necessarily the problem. Because it's a congregational problem. It's not a personal or a specific individual problem. It's a congregational problem. And if we allow that questioning to go on long enough, you move to this next stage, it's called, and I'm just gonna polar, polarization, because I don't have right, room to write it, polarization. We begin to polarize. A congregation, a group, begins to polarize, and it's a splinter or split. You'll find that people were here for years and now gone. In some cases, the polarization becomes a complete split. I know of one church, for example, that's so polarized. It was a Baptist church in the east, south and east, that they polarized to the point that they could not come to an agreement. They literally cut the church building down the middle, and this group took it that way, and this church took it that way. Serious, honest question, honest uh, fact, sincere fact. And the fact of it is that polarization, ultimately the point of it is, is once a organization, a church, a group polarizes, it's never the same group because the relationships we had are now broken. We now go to Walmart and we see them and we literally duck around the aisle because we don't want to see them. We hide because we don't want to have a conversation. And that polarization, once an organization, a church reaches the point of polarization, it is no longer the same church. Relationships, there's a fee, it's, it's like a divorce. There's hurt, 
There's pain. The relationships that we had are now severed and strained and stressed and whatever. And if we let it go long enough, we ultimately reach this point called death. It starts with a dream and ends with death. It's to the point where there's really no reason. I think of a church I worked with years ago, few, several years ago, one of the lar- at one point, one of the largest churches in the United States. They had three balconies in this church. It would seat probably around 2,500 people. It started in about 19, don't give me, hold me the numbers, but about 1905 is when it started. A big building, big, 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 nice church building. And when I started working with them, consulting with them, there were 75 people meeting in that church. Can you imagine 75 people meeting in a a building space that would seat 2,500? I mean, it would be like this group of people fitting in a room that's about 10 times or 15 times this size. And it's just like they're whatever. And the point of it is, is that church was, was really, in essence, dead. The point that I want to make today is that, is that there's reasons why a church goes through this. In fact, actually, from what we know is that churches that tend to go through these, this cycle is that one of the first things that happens is that a congregation begins to deteriorate spiritually, the relationships, there's the dynamic spiritually and relationally begin to deteriorate. These are things we can do something about. The relationships, the spirituality begins to kind of go into, because we're struggling with these questions and we don't come back to the person who is the dream giver. We re- relationships begin to struggle. Second thing that happens is that we don't come back and, if you will, redream the dream. Start thinking about where does God want to take us now? Not back, but forward. Not back, but forward. Where does he want to take us? And we can do something about that. We can say, God, what is it you want us to do? It's not yesterday, it's tomorrow. It's the future. And it's a maintenance mentality that also something that can keep us from going to the next phase. We just simply do business as usual. We go through the motions week in, week out, Sunday after Sunday. We go through our routines, our rituals, etc. And as a congregation, we do that. And it, though there may be a semblance of vitality, the fact of it is we're just going through and we hear and we, hear, we start thinking there's got to be more to church than this. Now this happens both in our lives as individuals and it happens in congregations. You see, we can face this same cycle in our life spiritually. Some of us can, we, some of us can remember when our own spiritual life was strong and vital with Christ. And some of us, if we look at this cycle, and by the way, I'm not going to do it here, but I can tell you that every one of you are thinking about where you are and where your church is right now. And I'm going to tell you, you're probably about 90% accurate. And so 
the honesty and the awareness is the first step to redreaming the dream. Letting that dream come back into our lives. You see, so what does this, all this mean to us? I think basically what it means to us is that we need to take to heart Jesus' words. I have come that you can have life, but not just ho-hum life, but an abundant life. If he were, I think, he would say to us as an individual and as a congregation, he would say, there's way more to it than what you're experiencing right now. There's way much more. And so take to heart. I think, so his words, do you believe what he said? If he were standing here today looking you eyeball to eyeball, he would say, There's, I have come to give you much more than you are experiencing now. I think the second thing is stop listening to the wrong voices. Some of you and us may be sitting here today and there's voices that have been drowning out the dream and it could be fear, it could be discouragement, it could be a sense of failure, it could be any one of those kind of voices that are robbing us of the future, of the, per, uh, of the plan that God has for us. What is keeping, what voice is beating into your head? What is it that's beating into your spirit saying, I'll never be enough, I'll never succeed, I never, what? That's not the voice of Jesus. There's no relationships that are broken that need to be restored or need to be managed or dealt with. Take an inventory and stop listening to the voices. And I think that we also need to, to um, we also need to take action. We need to decide to do something about it. How does the, how does the dream restored? The dream is restored by getting close to the person who gives the dream. Spend time with him, listen. Get to know his voice again. Spend time in his word, listen to him, pray. Is it, is it, is it, is it a congregation, you're in the process of searching for a pastor? There's no better time to redream a dream than right now. Most of the time congregations can redream a dream not because a pastor leaves, but because or when a new pastor comes. It's a good season to redream, but I'm gonna tell you, we have to be willing to, to let Jesus' dream be a reality. Pray, pray that God will bring the right person to your church as a leader. Pray for your board, your search committee. Pray, pray, heal relationships, build relationships. This is a season to redream the dream. It could be a time when you need to look at your own life and say, hey, I need to get back on track. I need to deal with some stuff in my own life. And so what I'm saying to you today is God has a dream for you. He has a dream for you personally. He has a dream for your church. Do you believe it? 
I have come, I have come, I have come that you may have life, not just as you're experiencing it, but life more than you can even imagine. And today we're going to claim it in Jesus' name. And so as the people, the, the worship team comes forward, I would like him to, I think the song that you've sang, uh, What a Beautiful Name, is maybe a good place to kind of work today. Yeah. And we can take this down so it's out of your way if you want. But what I'd like you to do as we, as we sing this course, I want you to think about for a second, number one, what voices are you listening to? What voices are you listening to that is robbing of a dream? What's robbing you? What's robbing your church? What's robbing us of, of everything God has for us? And what is it we can do? And we basically say, I'm going to take action. And here's my challenge to you. Take one step. Take one step today and say, I'm going to identify the one thing that's keeping the dream from being a reality in my life. I'm going to identify one thing I can do that the dream becomes reality in my church. One step forward is all I'm going to ask. And if Jesus were standing here today, he would look you eyeball to eyeball. And he would say, you can't imagine the things I have in store for you. He would say, do not listen to the voices that are drowning out the dream. He would say, don't listen to the voices that are robbing you of my future for you. Let's sing this chorus. And then as we, as we sing, we'll go through it once. I want you to identify one thing, one thing that, can, that you need to say, Jesus, I'm giving this to you because I need, I need to not hear this voice. I need to hear your voice. And to determine one action that you will take to move forward into his plan. Let's stand. Let's sing it together.